Hey, what's up, everybody? Now, I need to know right now, I'm a Southerner. Uh, we talk in church, okay? So I need to know where the amen crowd is. Where's the amen crowd? Come on, shout me down. No, you guys are all sleeping, apparently. So let's try this again. Where's the amen crowd at? Okay, and the, the come on somebody crowd, where's them? Yeah, okay, you're learning. Where's the mmm crowd? There's that group. Every, yeah, okay, good. I just, I'm going to need you to talk to me tonight. Um, it's a new crowd for me, and I'm just so honored to be here. Welcome, welcome, welcome to your uh, annual district council. My name is Mike Burnett, and I get to, the privilege of serving as pastor of LifePoint Church, but even more importantly, I'm the husband of 20 years this summer to my wife, Stephanie, my college sweetheart, and we have four daughters. Yeah, so I need all the guy time I can get. Anybody want to hunt, burp, fart, anything you want to do? I'm down with that. I, I'm drowning in estrogen in my house. I know all the Frozen songs. I know all the Disney songs. Uh, but having four kids means I love marriage. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm saying? Some of you got that joke. Some of you a little slow on the uptake. Um, well, good evening again. And let me just tell you what a privilege it is for me to be here with you. I'm not necessarily a traveling speaker. I'm not on any circuit. Uh, but God has given me an, a, a bunch of opportunities in Minnesota over the last few years. Uh, first was a guest speaker at a, a friend's church here in Minneapolis. Uh, on a Wednesday night, and then my buddy, my, my wife's youth pastor is Jeff Grinnell from when she was in Dayton, Ohio. And so Jeff kind of opened the door for us to get involved with North Central. We've hired some North Central grads at our church. Allison Shaminti was an intern with us. Uh, Evan Fortunato was our kids' pastor for a few years. And so we just love North Central minus the cold. I'm from New Orleans, the other end of the Mississippi River, so I don't even believe in wintertime. I don't even know what y'all are doing with this freezing cold weather, but nonetheless, um, got to be the mowing chair at North Central this fall, and I'm just so honored for Dr. Graham, the invitation to be a part of the mowing chair this year, and, and what a great school, by the way, that you guys have here in Minneapolis, and so, so proud of that, and uh, anyway, anytime God opens a door of opportunity for me to preach, I just count it as such an opportunity and a blessing, so I'm truly humbled to be here and very thankful. Um, thank you to Superintendent Mark Dean. Man, this invitation is an honor to speak. This is my first district council I've ever spoken at. Uh, I'm in a district and they don't want me talking. Like, I don't know why. They don't, they're like, shut that. Hey, I got two friends from Tennessee right here. They're part of our district as well. And they're, they're with an organization called Save One, which is working. And it's an amazing organization to help uh, families who have survived or on the back end of abortion, whether they've tried it and failed or considered it or had an abortion. And now they're working through the healing process for men and women, by the way. Uh, and so they're here and they have a booth out, but they're down from Tennessee. And actually, Chris with the giant beard over here is my oldest AG friend, even longer than I've known my wife. He and I were freshmen in college together, sophomores in college, studying music. I was going to be an opera singer. He was going to be a music choral director. And we were in the same choir in college at the University of Tennessee where Jesus went to school because he's a volunteer. He gave his life voluntarily for the world. It's in the Bible. Read it. But anyway, hey, I want to say thank you for the invitation. Your reputation is incredible, honestly. I mean, people talk about superintendents all the time. You know, as, as, as superintendents are talked about, they're talked about for so many things. But the thing that has been said about you over and over again is your love for God and people. And I'll be honest, like, we're all kind of, we, we know leadership. We talk about leadership. And you're a good leader. You're a great leader. You've been in this district for a long time. But it's rare that people start talking about their leader at the character level. And I just want to affirm that in front of your people to say, man, it's, your, it's an honor for you to serve here and to serve under you tonight. And uh, I just want to say your, your reputation precedes you, and it's all good. Everybody loves you here. Can we honor our superintendent tonight, everybody? Thank you very much. 
So I, um, I, I do have a, uh, just a little quick pitch. Um, when I was working on my doctorate, I decided to skip the dissertation and just write a book instead. And then I gave it to my seminary for my, I said, can I use this as a dissertation? So we worked our way through that. Um, but in 2018, our church was listed America's fastest growing church by Outreach Magazine. And honestly, I, I took over, I, it wasn't a church plan, it was a revitalization. I'm a, I like to fix broken things. And so I took over a dying church. We had um, 52 voting members. We were two and a half million in debt and 15,000 behind my first month. And they were all mad because the previous pastor had some bad behavioral issues, right? So I'm 30 years old with two kids and I took over that church. So all you church planners that think you need money, no, you don't. Because we had less than no money. You know what I'm saying? We were so far behind, it was unbelievable. But the Lord brought us to this church in Clarksville, Tennessee. And um, over the years, God's just favored it. Somehow, I can't explain it. I didn't grow up in ministry. I didn't grow up in church family. I didn't grow up uh, saved even. I got saved when I was a senior in high school. And I was going to be a music student. Met an AG girl who wouldn't go to my church. And she said, I'm AG. I go to an AG church. I invited her when we started talking. And I said, well, I'm AG too. I'll see you Sunday. I didn't even know what that was. And I, true story, I never heard of the AG till I fell in love with my wife. But um, do you remember that? Anyway, um, I was going to a non-denom church, you know, and she was like, I ain't going there. I'm AG. I said, me too. Anyway, so I, fast forward, I end up on staff at an AG church. I go to AG seminary. I mean, the, the Lord just totally redirected my life from music, opera, singing, performing to pastoring. And I take over this church in 2010. We had 85 people my first Sunday. And they were all hurt and mad and angry. And I just was like, I, I got my own church. I don't even know how to, I don't know what bills are. I don't know what that is yet. I'd only been on staff with people who paid all the bills. You know what I'm saying? And uh, every year we've grown. We've doubled some years. We've doubled twice in a year sometimes. It's just been this trajectory of fast growth and hard and busy and heavy and hard and busy and heavy. And growth is always fun to celebrate, but it's really hard to lead and manage. And I, I, just, I just had some great mentors in my life along the way, guys like Rob Ketterling, and pastors that are from this district. In fact, Nate Roosh has been a friend to me over the years. And I just decided to ask a lot of questions and learn on the way. Um, but in 2018, we were listed the fastest growing church in America, which I didn't even know that we had gotten put on the outreach list. I had a staff member that was submitting our numbers, and I didn't know it. So uh, our second year on that list, we were number one in America. And that December, I wanted to quit ministry. I hated it. I hated the pressure that it put on us. I hated the expectation on top of that, when, when God shines the light on you, the devil starts attacking you. It's like he all, all of a sudden can see you bigger, you know, you're a bigger target to the enemy. And my marriage was in the worst stage it had ever been. And uh, our staff was in the worst pain that we were going through. I had a son in the faith confess to moral failure on our team. First moral failure we'd ever had. It was brutal. And I remember telling my wife, if this is what it means to do ministry, I don't want to do it like this. I'd rather go back to a small church somewhere where I know everybody and growth isn't a problem and it's easy <laughs> because growth is really hard. Stephen Furtick said one time, everybody wants harvest till it's harvest time. And then it's really hard work. So anyway, in the course of all of this, I started uh, getting a lot of calls and questions. And people would ask, what would you do? What would you do? What's your secret? I said, I don't have any secrets. I do the same thing you do. They're like, oh, that's not true. you got to be doing something special. I was like, okay, we give out drugs in the lobby. I don't know what to tell you. You know, like... <laughs> So I'd throw out these stupid missives, and you know what we all do when God does something in our lives? We go, well, to God be the glory, and we don't want to take any credit. Well, I'd get to ask these questions so often, and I started saying, well, God doesn't even care. It doesn't matter how you do church. I mean, every church in America, honest to God, think about it. Every church in America does really the same four things. We do Sunday services. Some of y'all do Saturdays, and your staff hates you. <laughs> I'm just telling you the truth because they're lying to you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
Oh yeah, pastor, we love it. Anyway, uh, we do Sunday weekend services where we preach the word and we have worship. And second thing we do is some kind of small group, Sunday school, midweek. I don't care the formula. It's just we do smaller groups because I don't even know big needs to get small. And then we assimilate our people. We get them into membership and volunteer training, and we try to get them in the system, in the flow. And then we have volunteers. And you can ask a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Catholic, an Episcopalian, a Pentecostal, or a Lutheran, and they all do those four things. So I'd start telling people, we do the same thing as you. They go, well, something's different. And then I'd say this, yeah, it's just not terrible to come to my church. They go, what do you mean? I go, well, I'm not saying it's terrible to go to your church. But for some, people, for some reason, people like coming to our church. And it's because we obsess over the culture of our church. We obsess over Here's the thing. You ain't going to change the Bible. You're not going to change the theology. Come on. We're not, you don't need to spend a lot of time trying to reinvent the theological wheel. God gave us his word. He's given us his mission. We don't need to change that. What you need to do is help people be nice and make sure the building smells good and make sure lost people are welcome in your church. But we've built these holy social clubs where outsiders don't feel welcome the social pariah of the day know they're the social pariah because we say it and pick on them from the pulpits. We make cultural statements that, that just keep people at a distance. But Jesus had a way of loving lost people and always embracing missing people. So I'd start asking people, pastors would call for coaching, what are you doing, what are you doing? I'd say, tell me about your church. they go, it's awesome. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm sure you think so because you keep coming. But what do lost people think about it? What do you mean? I go, well, ask them. Well, we don't have lost people coming to our church. There's a problem. So I'd say Jesus had lost people around him all the time. And it's actually what got him killed. And it gets really uncomfortable when you're pastoring a church with gay couples and atheist couples and Muslims in your church. And they're coming to hear the gospel and the Christians are going, what are they doing here? And they call you going, pastor, why are these kind of people in our church? And I go, because uh, Jesus wants them here. And he trusts them to us. I don't know about these kind of people. And those are the folks that crucified Jesus. And pastors are scared of those people. I've just looked those people in the face and said, I'll see you in heaven, but I may not see you in our church next week. And we're going to reach lost people. And we're going to have an inviting environment. We're not going to water down the gospel. We're not going to change our theology. We're not going to rewrite the Bible. But we're going to have an obsession about an environment where lost people can come. So I got called all the time after our church was listed the fastest. What's the secret? Can you coach us? Yada, yada, yada. So I put it in a book because I started asking questions about the culture of the church. That's the thing. Here's the thing. Vision, all of us have the same vision. So we can serve as small groups, next steps, whatever, dream team, all that. It's the culture of your church that actually will allow people to come back or not. Well, what if Jesus set the culture? So I started studying the 37 parables of Jesus. And every parable Jesus taught starts with, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom is like, and they tell a story, make it up on the spot. I mean, he's brilliant, right? The kingdom is like a man who lost a sheep. He had 99 others, but he didn't go, well, I got 99 more. I forget that one. He got them safe and went after the one. It's like a woman who lost a coin. And she flipped her house upside down and like ripped up floorboards and found a coin and threw the biggest party ever. Has anyone ever been to a party that was celebrating finding a nickel? I mean, that's absurd. Jesus said, but my kingdom, we throw parties when lost nickels are found. And I started asking pastors, what does it feel like for Jesus to be the pastor of that church? 
And so I looked at the 37 parables of Jesus, and I learned some things. Number one, 100% of them reveal a cultural ethic in his kingdom. And 100%, if you study the 37 parables of Jesus, 100% of the words that you would use to describe the culture Jesus is revealing, listen to this, 100% of those words are positive. But so many of our churches have a negative culture. We're judgmental, we're unforgiving, we're critical, we're stingy. And I started asking, what if Jesus' parables directed the how we do church, how it feels to be in our church? Keep doing your programming, keep doing your systems. But let Jesus, like, I asked the question, if, if you died and the, the, there was a search committee put together for a new pastor and Jesus interviewed, would he even like the place? So those are questions I deal with in my book. And I really talk about three parables that have shaped, I'm not even preaching on the parables tonight, okay? So I got to give you this little, because we have them available for you. If you want it, if not, steal it, and then God will judge you. But I, I want to gift it. I, I want you to have it because honestly, I think this translates to every church on the planet, including in uh, other nations, that the culture of the kingdom of God transcends northern, southern, Republican, Democrat. It transcends all of that. The kingdom of heaven is revealed in the parables of Jesus. And what if they lead your church culture? And here's what you'll see with Jesus lost people loved him. And lost, like, growth was natural around him. Right? So anyway, that's the book that I wrote and uh, became my doctoral dissertation, praise God. Uh, that was an awesome little background. But I, I focus on the parable of the prodigal son or the two sons, the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents in the book. And I have it for you in the lobby. It's 15 bucks. It's my kid's college fund. So it's one for 15, two for 100. Uh, it's a great deal. <laughs> you said it's a generous district, so I appreciate that. I do want to ask, is there any up-and-coming church planner in the room, anybody right now, you're planning a church, like you're in queue to plant a church? Anybody ever heard of church planting? My Lord. You know what? Here, there's your book. I'm sorry. That's just a gift for you. I was trying to give it to a church planter, but uh, they're all eaten still. All right, I'm going to preach tonight out of 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5. Uh, I hope the book's a blessing to you, and sorry that I almost hit you in the face with that, ma'am. Please forgive me. Um, I, I really prayed through what to preach on tonight, and I feel like God gave me a really heavy word, and I know we're just getting to know each other. And um, this may be my last invitation up here ever, but I'm just going to blame God for this, okay? We're spirit-filled for a reason, amen? And so I, I have a word for you that's a little heavy, but I think it's the heart of God for us. I feel like district councils are always a time for a great reset, right? Like it's a time of refreshing and training and relational connections, and, and, and it's a time when we should be able to just not worry about schedule, not worry about, um, like, as pastors, we need to be poured into and refreshed. And so my hope is that tonight will be a, a bit of a dig, but it'll set us free from some things. So I've titled the message, When Idols Come Down. If I were to pull the room and ask you to raise your hand and say, how many of you struggle with idols? Nobody's going to raise their hand, right? Because we're liars. And the reality is idolatry is part of the, the reality of the human condition, if idolatry wasn't a problem, it wouldn't have been the second commandment. I think God gave us 10 commandments to start because he knew that these 10 things would be a problem forever. Loving him first, setting up idols in your life, taking the name of God in vain, which is not saying the name of God in vain, by the way. The commandment is don't take his name vainly. Don't take the name of Christian and live like hell. Keep a Sabbath, everybody, because we're workaholics and we think in our own strength that we actually 
can do something. I think all of the commandments should be a reflection of the fact that we still have growth to get through and God's still doing some work in us. And idolatry is one of the commandments because every one of us struggles with idols, myself included. But I want to challenge us tonight with a message out of 1 Samuel. And I'm not, I'm normally an expository preacher. I'm a verse-by-verse guy, so we unpack the text and we walk through it together. But tonight's going to feel a little bit more like a topical talk based off of an Old Testament text, but we're going to land together in an expository uh, fashion at the end of the sermon. And I just want to ask you even now to let God like prick your heart. Y'all remember those kind of moments with God when you, I remember as a young Christian, I used to just cry out to God and say, Lord, you can have whatever you want in my life. I remember as a, a freshman and sophomore in college at the University of Tennessee, just begging God to have every bit of me and just expose my life to him. I'd pray just bold, audacious, loud prayers. And you know, when you're 20 and you don't have anything to lose, you give God everything. When you're 42 with a family and a reputation, you're like, okay, God, you can have the stuff that I'm not really comfortable dealing with right now. But I just want to ask us if you would tonight, would you let God just with abandon have everything of you tonight? Just let him expose some things in you tonight. Can we do that together, everybody? Can I just be your pastor for a moment? Father, in Jesus' name, would you right now, by the power and anointing of your Holy Spirit, begin to just separate, God, like your word says, the, the, the division of soul and spirit. God, would you begin to separate, God, us from our flesh and, and our egos and separate, Lord God. Separate us from the things that are holding us back from you and bring us back to a place of just deep, deep dependence and eagerness for you to speak to us. I pray, God, that tonight would be a, a line in the sand evening, a watershed moment for us, that, God, we would never, ever be the same after tonight. Because, Lord, I, I truly believe in my heart that you have a word for tonight for us and that it will change us forever, and we must be open to it in Jesus' name. Help us, Lord God. Amen. Amen. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, it's a really interesting story. Um, the Israelites are in fights uh, a lot. <laughs> They're scrappy. And in chapter 4, the Philistines are in battle with the Israelites. And there's this moment where it says the, the sound of the Israelites come up and the Philistines hear it. They, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp, right? So I'm paraphrasing here, but they, they're encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines are encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew a line against Israel. And, and the battle lines are spreading, and Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who had killed about 4,000 men. And when the people came to camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the, Israel, the Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They had a right heart. They're saying, Let's get God involved in this. Let's bring the presence of God to bear in our battle. So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned on cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, the high priest, who was also a judge for 40 years, the two sons of Eli, who are Hophni and Phinehas, they were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel starts screaming and shouting. It's like a thunderous roar. So the earth resounded. Now the presence of God is with them in the battle. Come on, y'all. Y'all get excited. I feel like Mel Gibson is directing this film here. A mighty shout. And the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, the Philistines, the enemies, the pagans, these guys said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they learned the ark of the, of the Lord had come to the camp, and the Philistines were afraid. And they said, a god 
a God has come into the camp. They said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians. God has a reputation among these Philistines, right? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Take courage, O men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated again. And Israel fled, every man to his home. There was a great slaughter For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, dead. The story goes on. The Philistines are in battle with the Israelites, and they capture the ark of the covenant. They, in effect, have now procured the presence of God for themselves. I don't even understand this picture, honestly, because I feel like everywhere the Ark of the Covenant goes, there should be victory. But for some reason, the Philistines still had victory, even though the Ark of the Covenant was present with them. It doesn't make sense. I've got a question for heaven from that one. But, but we know that the presence of God resides in the earth in this time in history because of the Ark of the Covenant. Where the Ark of the Covenant is, the Spirit of God is with the Ark of the Covenant. And the sons of Eli, who's the priest, Hophni and Phinehas, they were derelict sons. If you remember in previous chapters, they're, they're just terrible, worthless, the Bible calls them, right? But they die in battle. And, and it goes on to say, a man of Benjamin had run from the battle line and come to Shiloh that day, which is where Eli was. And his clothes were torn. There's dirt on his head, which is a sign of grieving. And when he arrived, he tells Eli, he's sitting in his seat as the priest and the judge, and his heart was trembling for the ark of God. He's thinking there's going to be great news. And this man comes into the city and he says, man, everybody's dead. And he heard the sound of upcry. And he says, what's the uproar? He says that everybody's dead and your sons are dead. And Eli, sitting there today, he's distraught. He's disgusted. Like he's, he's totally hurt. It says that he fell over. And because he was heavy... He fell on his neck and he he broke his neck and died. And then his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, she was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark was captured, so the glory is gone. And her father-in-law is dead and her husband is dead. She bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And at that time, she she gave birth and she called her child Ichabod which means the glory has departed from Israel. By the way, this is a lesson in not making long-term decisions when you're emotional. (laughs) Poor kid, for the rest of his life. Where's that name come from? Well, it was a bad Saturday, you know, like, (laughs) poor guy. But honestly, in grief, think of what's happening here. The glory of of God has departed Israel. The priest is dead. She's her husband is dead. I mean, it's a terrible scene. And honestly, if the scene were to end there, it's a depressing end of the movie, a terrible day for Israel and an awful day for God and for his people. But I want us to look at the next chapter. All the backstory is important, but I want us to see the next chapter and and we won't take as much time as we did just now. In 1 Samuel 5, it's like it's like the other scene of the movie. You ever watch a movie like a battle scene and, and the one team gets defeated and they're licking wounds and, and counting their dead and all that. But then the other scene is like Skull Viking. They're coming in celebrating and the candles are lit and they're all having... That's a Minnesota reference for all you guys. You're welcome. Here's the Skull Viking scene, chapter 5, verse 1, the Philistines. 
So when the Philistines had captured the ark of God, look at this. For them, it's a celebration. They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the, the house, the temple of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. Now, Dagon was their idol. It was their god. And it was a half-man, half-fish statue, this giant statue of a half-man, half-fish. And they set the ark of the covenant next to their idol, Dagon. This is a big deal for them. What a, what a place of honor for them. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, the Philistines come. They looked, and Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now here's a verse I want to key in on for the rest of this talk. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Moving on, so for the rest of the story. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down before the ark of the Lord. And this time the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left of him. So, so the second day it's been smashed to pieces. And it says in verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon, the Philistine priests of Dagon, and everyone who enters the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this very day. In other words, they dipped out and they never went back to that idol temple again. Notice again the verse in the middle. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Remember, if you will, the ark of God carries the presence of God, the presence of the spirits among the people. By the way, the parallel for us in the New Testament, the new covenant, is that we are the ark of God. We are the dwelling house and the temple of God. Can I hear an amen? He dwells in us and among us. And according to John, Jesus in John 14 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, we are the now temple, not the ark, but we are the ark. We are the temple of God. Why is that important? Because we have a tendency like them to put our idols next to the presence of God on the inside of us. The enemies have now captured the ark and they bring it into the house of their idol. This is the temple. It's a place of honor. He was, he was the one they worshiped and they bowed down to and he had his own place. So for them to put the ark of the covenant in the temple room, in the sacred room, was a, a place of honor. It was their idol trophy room. It was the holy of holies for the Philistines. Their immediate move was to, to, they honored the presence of God so much that they put it in companionship or in company with their false god, this idol, Dagon. And this is the tendency of our culture today. We want God with us, little God. We want his way alongside our way. Syncretism is the way of humanism. The desire to blend faiths, to merge faith in Jesus along with secular humanism. Hello, are you, are you tracking with what's happening in our world today? We want to we make everything Christianized. We want to put a little Jesus sprinkle on top of something, on top of secular logic, on top of sexual immorality. We want to put Jesus on top of American experience and culture. We still want to put Jesus and his gospel next to our worldly idols and ideologies, and we do it as pastors too, either in an effort to make the church more relevant or the gospel more palatable or to be a leader who's less offensive. If you're not paying attention, it's a major pressure to blend idols and ideology alongside with the gospel today. How many of you know, listen, the Lord is the same. He never changes. The same God that demanded his own space then is the same God who demands his own space in the throne room of your life and heart and the throne room of your church. 
He is still, listen, God will never change. He's still the only way to know God. He's still the only way to have eternal life. And he still expects that holiness and sanctification and separation from the world and unto God still matters. And we can still live a spirit-filled life, a spirit-led life, not just a do better, be better moralism, a better a behavior modification, try hard, pull up your bootstraps, and be good kind of life. That's not the life God has for us. But we try to blend the two, the, our idols of do better with the reality of God's presence. Anybody else struggle with idolatry? So the Philistines are doing what godless people do. They're treating the Lord as a common God another idol of another pagan religion. And they're simply placing the ark. Can you imagine? Like, can you imagine being the four guys that got to carry the ark? The Philistines, who just didn't know. Man, we're carrying this big old gold. You know, Philistines, that's how they talk. We're just carrying this big old box, you know. They don't even know what they're holding. And I'm afraid some of us Pentecostals have forgotten what we're carrying we're forgotten what we're holding. We're forgotten. I'm not calling you Philistines, bunch of Vikings, but listen. <laughs> the Philistines are doing what godless people do. They're treating the Lord as a common God, another idol in their pagan deity collection room, simply placing the ark in a room to give him honor, but it's next to their other God. But how many of you know God will not share his throne with anyone or anything? So the next morning in the presence of God's spirit, Dagon had fallen to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This language is specific. It shows that idols will never survive ultimately in the presence of God. And we know every knee will bow, every tongue will confess ultimately that Jesus is Lord of all and will bow face down to God forever. Falling before the ark of God is to show the preeminence of God's power over everything, even an inanimate object like a fish man statue called Dagon. And here it is. Here's the human condition. When that idol had fallen, when that thing had been pushed down in their life, they did what we do. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. That's what we do. God tries to knock something out of your life and you go, I'm good for three months. I'm good for a year. But as soon as we get the opportunity, we reach back down and we grab that idol and we put it back in its place. And we're all guilty of it. If it wasn't a recurring human problem, it wouldn't have been the second commandment. So please don't think for a moment, I've been saved X amount of years. I got a prayer life. I've been, you know, whatever. Look, all of you are men and women of God. There's nobody questioning that. But you're also idolatrous because you're human. And so we have to deal with the fact that we, like the Philistines, like to get our idols off the ground and put them back in their place. Can I tell you, idols, idolatry is a sinister companion. It just keeps recurring and keeps coming back. God will give you victory in this sin only to let another idol spring up over here. I never cared about numbers until we had numbers. I never cared about money until I started having money. Anybody else remember being broke and happy? Come on, newlyweds, you guys should be poor and broke. Have no money for nothing but newlywed activities. It's free. That's how I got four kids. We were broke. Come on, Jesus. Is that kind of humor allowed up here in the north? I'll keep you warm in the winter. Come on, everybody. Amen. Idolatry is a sinister companion. It keeps recurring and coming back and will never leave you alone until you stop breathing in this world. 
It's in our hearts to be idol makers. It's from the Garden of Eden showing us in our perfect state we chose idolatry. The temptation in the Garden of Eden was idolatry. Think about it. The temptation was not fruit. No one is tempted to leave God to be a vegan. Let's go. (laughs) The temptation of that's right. All you angry vegans, come on, work your way up here. I'll wait. The temptation of the Garden of Eden is when you eat this fruit, you will be just like idolatry. It's been our temptation even when we were perfect, before we had a sin nature. So listen, we love to make idols. We love to be gods. We're kingmakers by nature. And when God allows idols in our lives to fall, when the presence of God is so strong and obvious that our idols fall face first on the ground, our human condition is to get through that moment, get through that worship service, get through that weekend at camp, and then go get our idol off the ground and put it back in its place. Keep that verse on the screen, please. And they put Dagon back in its place. Here's what I'm excited about. As I look back over the last two years, God uses crises to shatter idols. Think about it. Like Philistines destroying the Israelites. Like Philistines stealing the ark. Like the glory departing Israel. Or like global pandemics. Think about the last two years and the opportunities God's had in your life to break some things off of you. And some of the things that probably two years ago, we go, this is a great reset. This is a great time to change how we think about this and that. And everybody was like, well, you know, it's not really about the numbers. And now we can prove it because everybody's left our church and they're not coming back. I believe we've had to deal with idolatry as a result of the last two crazy years. In fact, I think God's allowing this season to be a wake-up season for the church to remember what really matters, shatter the idols of things that don't matter in our lives. Maybe be honest about our tendency to put those idols back in place. The multiple crises, think of what we've lived through over the last two years. It shines spotlight on good and magnifies the bad, right? We've lived through the most difficult two years of most of our lifetimes. We've experienced deep divisions over a global pandemic. We're not friends with anybody anymore over it. Mask, no mask. Vaccine, no mask. You know, where you sit politically and racially about the the greatest catastrophic racial pain in the U.S., a very toxic presidential election, very unsettling finances, lockdowns, isolation, suicide rates on the rise, growing exponentially. Did you know this? I pastor in an army town. And more soldiers have died by suicide in the last two years than by COVID, like by three or four times over. Suicide is is like one of the fastest growing crises in our culture right now. And as pastors and leaders, we've had to lead through and shepherd through all of these things in our volunteer organizations that we then closed down for months. And we're only just now, two years later, starting to feel like things kind of did prior to two years ago. We've all struggled with our calling. We've wanted to quit. We've begged the Lord to come on back. But here's a reminder, and can I encourage you, God was never canceled. God never got COVID. God never went missing. He never lost an election. He's never gotten quarantined. He never racially oppressed anyone. He actually never experienced racial oppression. God's always God. He's always good. He's always on his throne. He hasn't left you. He's never forsaken you. He's not removed his hand off your life. He's not removed his assignment off of you. Can I tell you something? If you didn't put that assignment on you, you don't get to take that assignment off of you. Listen, you are still called by God. You're still equipped by the spirit. You're still the right person for your assignment. But yet we're idol makers. Back in April 2020, I made a statement to our team in lockdown. I said, COVID needs to kill some things in us. 
COVID's the opportunity to kill some things. I'm talking about choirs. Come on, Jesus. I was a music pastor when I started, okay, so I can say it. I'm talking about bulletins. Come on, Jesus. Like, nobody likes making them. Nobody likes reading them. Your kid's not a good artist, so their doodling's terrible. I mean, come on. Let it die. What happened to our bulletins? Got COVID. <laughs> Died. Just some things just need, I told our team, I was like, some things need to die with COVID. We have not passed a bucket in our church in two years. It died with COVID. We haven't had a bulletin in two years. Our church is growing fast as it ever has been. Listen, some of the things that we think are important just aren't. We actually, uh, we ripped the cafe out between Sundays. You know, the sacred thing in church is coffee because he brews. Hey, man, come on now. That's good. <laughs> we ripped the cafe out between Sundays because I said, ain't nobody going to heaven over a latte. It's expensive, and it's taking up space where we can do other things like baptize people in the cafe space. So on one Sunday, we're like, get all your lattes and your breads and paninis and whatever. The next week, it was a flat floor with nothing there. People going, what happened? I go, got COVID. Cafe died with COVID, got sick, getting vaccinated. It's terrible. <laughs> but I realized more than just the stuff in our churches, I realized that there's some idols in my life that needed to die as well, and idols in our ministry leadership world, and idols in us that needed to die as well. So, so what do we do with a talk on idolatry from 1 Samuel 4 and 5 when we're New Testament spirit-filled people? Well... I want to first challenge, it's just two thoughts and then I'll be done. Two more thoughts. Isn't that what every pastor does, right? Just a little bit longer. Two thoughts. Number one is we need to be honest about idolatry. We just need to be honest about the idolatry in our lives. Here's what an idol is. Anything that shares space in your devotion that is reserved for God. Anything that takes up heart space for you. Anything that, it could be a hobby, it could be a person, an infatuation, it could be unforgiveness. It could be a sin that you're holding. You're only as healthy as your secrets, right? It, an idol is anything that God does not have the right to say, you can't have that. And we all have them. Some of them are benign, we think. Some of them, they're just like, they're just cultural or they're just where we're at in life. And, but they're idolatrous. Here's, here's the test of idolatry. idolatry. Ready? Could you lose it? Could God ask you tonight? to lay it down and let it fall apart and it stay there and you, like the Philistines, leave that there and never return. Could God ask you to lay down your retirement that you've been working so hard to build that's become an idol? Could God ask you to lay down that unforgiveness for another person in this room that you hate and you're sitting on one side because she's on that side and you can't stay? Could God ask you to lay down unforgiveness tonight? Could God ask you to lay down your secret addictions? Could God ask you to lay down your image your identity. So I started working through my own idols. And I think they're common to ministers. I think they're common to the industry that we're a part of. And I want to chat. These are, these are my idols. And I don't have all of them. I got a few of them. But I think there's some that all of us struggle with. These are in no particular order. Let me just give you a list of things that I want us to be honest about. First of all, it's one that I think I can speak candidly about. It's the idol of numbers. I love when people say, of course God loves numbers. He wrote a book called Numbers. He also wrote a book called Romans, but I don't see you going to Rome. <laughs> but for me, and all of us know this as ministers, we, we find our value in the numbers. That's an idol. Because our, our value is in Christ. And, and let me just say, 
I'm the numbers guy. Like I, I was in that race. I won that race. I mean, I'm just being, I'm amongst friends here. So I'm saying it in a way that's a little sarcastic. We were the fastest growing church in America. That's a numbers thing. By the way, you know where you go from number one? Down. So here's where I knew it was an idol. The next year, we went from number one to 77, fastest growing out of 300-something thousand. And I was like, how did that happen? That's not right. Let me see the report. And I started defending a number that I felt was a failure when we're still growing and one of the fastest growing in the country still, it wasn't enough. And I had to stay near the top of that list for some reason. And I I remember meeting with our team going, how in the world did this happen? Who reported those numbers? What numbers did you turn in? I'm getting mad like a drill sergeant because it was an idol. Because what started as a blessing of God became something that I wanted to own, which is idolatry. That family that God's blessed you with that you're now controlling and won't let flourish is an idol. That money that God's blessed you with that now you've called a, 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 a little purse for the future or a little nest egg and you just refuse to give it to missions or give as God's, that thing that God blessed you. It's always the blessing of God that becomes the idols. So the idol of numbers, attendance, giving groups, groups, attendance, percentages, nickels and noses, growth campuses, all this stuff. They're necessary, right? We count what matters. These are people. But be honest about the grip numbers has on your lives. And in ministry, here's what we do. Matt, can I tell you, one of the things I hate about general counsel, I love everything about it. I'm a company man, by God. But I hate getting on elevators with strangers. Because here's what strangers do to you. They got the badge on, the general counsel Orlando badge and the little palm trees on the lanyard. And it's usually an older guy in like shorts and a, you know, like a Hawaii shirt. And he goes, where are you from, young man? And you tell him. And they go, where are you running? And I'm going to go, unleaded? I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what do you mean? Well, how big's your church? One time I answered, I was like, we're between eight and 10,000. What? Yeah, I mean, it's like 250, but that's between eight and 10,000. It's a big gap, big gap. We all do it to each other. All of you guys this week, I guarantee I could put money, I'd bet Mark Dean's paycheck. Somebody in this room has asked this question. Here's the question. You ready? This is the COVID reality of this idol. How are you doing compared to your pre-COVID numbers? Mm, 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 mm. Here's the answer to that. Who cares? God is not going to stand you up at judgment with a roster. That's his church. You're simply an employee. You're simply a team member. You're the leader, the shepherd, but those numbers are his problem. So, so we got to let that idol fall. And what happened to me, I started getting angry and I started wrestling through these numbers and I called Outreach Magazine and I said, take me off your list. I don't ever want to report again. Well, Mike, you were the fast growing. What's the deal? I said, you guys have revealed some things. That has revealed some things in me that aren't healthy and they need to die. So for 14 months, I told my team, don't ever tell me what our attendance is. Don't you tell me for 14 months and we're growing and it's doing good and we're back in four services and all this. I don't want to know. I didn't ask for our attendance for 14 months. Easter of 2021, I had no idea what our attendance was. I still don't know. And it was so liberating. So this year on Easter, I thought, ah, I'm mature enough now. 
I can handle it. And I knew it was a big day. And I asked our guy, well, how do we do? Okay, I'm ready. And the first, when he told me the number, I go, that's not right. It was more. Take our idols and put them back up. I go, I'm sorry, man. I can't know. Just don't tell me anymore. Because I know for me, the numbers guy, that's an idol that has to die. I'm not measured by my fruitfulness. I'm measured for my faithfulness. Fruitfulness is God's problem. Faithfulness is my problem. If it's 20 people, I was faithful to God when it was 52 angry people. And if it's 58,000, I'm required to be faithful there, not fruitful there. Second idol we struggle with is people-pleasing. Man, in the last two years, we've all struggled. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to say the right thing. I don't want to say it too loud. Galatians 1.10 says, if we seek to please people, we will never please God. Bullies and harassers are winning. Loudest voices are not smart voices. Listen, just because people are loud doesn't mean they're right. And church, listen, we cannot seek to please or acquiesce the crowd, the mob, or the people, especially those outside of the church. Quit worrying about liabilities. You just stand up flat-footed and preach the word of God and call people to Jesus. We seek to lead people and we strive to please Jesus. We do not seek to please people while then leading Jesus to them. No, we, we lead people and please Jesus. We got to let that idol die. And all of us have given into that. And we keep giving it. Well, I don't want to upset them. I don't want to offend them. Offend them right into heaven. The third idol is the idol of, I got to get through this because I'm out of time. Every one of us do this on Sundays, don't we? I'm almost done. Let the band chill. The idol of comparison. Man, I just, I'm, I'm 42, but I remember, especially in my 30s, like I've taken social media off my phone now. And during COVID, I unfollowed everybody on social media. All these guys with better equipment and better hair and all this whatever, I just couldn't handle it. The day of celebrity pastors must die and end forever in Jesus' name. I had to purge thousands off my social media. Here's what would happen. We'd have a great day, killer day, 25 people get baptized, 58 people give their lives to Jesus. And then I'd go to the bathroom get on Instagram and lose my soul because somebody else posted a better highlight reel. Listen to me, David, never fight the devil in Saul's armor. You are only in competition with God's assignment on your life. You are only to be found faithful with your assignment, never anyone's else. You will not be judged by how you stack up to other people. Who cares what God is doing with them? Celebrate what God's doing with them. If it's bigger than yours, celebrate it. If it's smaller than yours, encourage it. Covet the breath of God on your life, not the breath of God on their lives. Some of us will lead big. Some of us will lead medium. Some of us will lead unknown and unseen. Some of us will lead small. That's fine. God plants, or some plants, some uh, water, but God brings increase. Who cares about the measure of increase of God on somebody else's life? Some are experience-driven. Some are theology-driven. Some write worship songs. Some preach great sermons. Some are just okay. And God is growing his church through all of us. Some seem to be everywhere at everything. My God, if I hear that person speak one more time. I heard him preach that sermon three times already. I've never preached this in front of any of you people. Never fight the devil in Saul's armor. You're anointed by God. And just be who God's anointed you to be. Let that idol fall and stay on the ground. Please don't wear the skinny jeans of another man. Good God. (laughs) I felt like that was appropriate in Minneapolis. I just felt like that would work here. I don't believe in skinny jeans. If your pants fit your wife, give them back to her. Come on, right? The only man in skinny jeans should be a cowboy. The original skinny jeans. Celebrate what God's doing in others' churches. 
Never idolize what God chooses not to do with you. Fourth idol is the, I'm going to really make some people mad. The over-evangelicalization of American politics. That is an idol that has to die. I appreciate your political passions, but don't forget your assignment is to this gospel. And Jesus ain't a Republican. He ain't a Democrat. He ain't a Libertarian. I like what Pastor Choco says. He's not a lion or an elephant. Or excuse me, he's not a, a donkey or an elephant. He's a lion in the tribe of Judah. He's another kingdom. Every, every, every kingdom on earth has fallen. The British Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire. And if the kingdom of America should fall too, the church of Jesus will never die. The kingdom of God will never collapse. When you take a political side in your church, you immediately alienate yourself from many people that God has assigned you to reach. Jesus didn't die to save America. He died to save Americans. Now, I believe... That part of what God has called us to do is to realize that we have gotten too chummy with some of our American version of things. Listen, don't forget, we're less than 5% of the world population. God cares so much about so many other countries. If you think God is holding back the angels and Jesus going, wait till the election of 2024 and then I'll send you, boy. Just wait. We're going to wait and see what happens. Hold. Hold. I mean, come on. Stop it, guys, please. The only hope for any nation is that the church be as passionate for Jesus as possible, full of the spirit. But yet every election cycle, we pick that idol up. We drape it in our flag. And we put it back in its place. And if you're mad at me about that, it's your idol. My greatest idol is prayerlessness and comfort. I'm a doer. I'm a thinker. Prayerlessness is my struggle and comfort. I love the comfort of the blessings of God in my life. And I think we've all known how to dial it in and pull it off. Don't be so comfortable and good at your ministry that you're not anointed to do it anymore. Anointing comes only from time with the Lord. But we've got so good at doing church, at dialing in our systems and processes, we become professional Christians. No matter how big or small you are, we all, know the, we all know the annual calendar. We know the rhythms. But you got to remember the anointing is what breaks the yoke of bondage. And anointed ministry and anointed leadership means Jesus is still in charge of you. And he's the one empowering you by his Holy Spirit. And he's still the one that can lead, flex, and drive you. We have nothing without the anointing of God. I want to encourage you, if you've lost the wind of God in your life, get back in your prayer closet before you go to one more leadership event, before you do anything else, get back into the place where you're desperate for the anointing of God Almighty. Talent without anointing will exhaust you. Talent without anointing is an idol of self. You're leaning into your own muscles and strength, but it's not by might or by power, but by the spirit of God. We've professionalized ministry to the point that we don't even have to pray about it anymore. And we all know how to pull off another Sunday, pull off another message. We're smart enough with the Bible to flow without an overflow. And we keep picking that idol back up. Because we don't run our calendars right, we don't run our lives right, and we don't spend enough time with God. Are we spirit-filled or what? I, I'm just going to throw out a bunch at you here, and, and we're going to close in just a minute. Idol of self-image and identity, idol of greed, idol of fear, to take a risk and do something crazy. 
idol of busyness. Oh, how you doing, brother? Man, I'm so busy, I can't even keep my head on straight. I'm running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Well, you're irresponsible. That's what you are. <laughs> Ain't nothing godly about you being so busy that God can't even get a word into you. Idol of resistance to change. Well, we've never done it that way. Yeah, Jesus never died on a cross before either, and then he did it. Idol of our past. Well, it's always been this way. Praise God. Back in the glory days. Glory days are always ahead. That's why rearview mirrors are this big and windshields are this big. Because the glory for the kingdom of God is always ahead of us, never behind us. Get over what you did before. Get on. I got an old country friend. He said, get on what you're getting on. If you've made mistakes, get over it. If you had a great Easter play back in the day with camels and Jesus coming out the ceiling, great. Them days are over. Move on. Get an LED wall and play a movie. The idol of unconfessed sin, vices, habits, addictions. Are y'all getting anything out of this? Idol of unforgiveness, idol of secrecy and isolation. I don't trust anybody. I'm going to tell you something. This is somewhere the AG's got to get this right. We don't create environments for pastors to screw up because we're afraid to say it. We've attached our job security to our morality so much that we don't give away anything to anybody. We don't trust anybody. You're going to turn me in. If you need a safe place to struggle, you can call me. If it ain't criminal, I'm not going to turn you in. And if you burn the White House down, I'm going to tell somebody. Listen, figure out your idols. You know what they are. What has a place in your heart that you won't give God? And what do we do with it? I got to finish. We need to do what the Philistines did. First time, they put it back. That's what all of us keep doing. The second time, they let it fall and they let it stay down. I am no way here to cast judgment on you. I just know the subtle way the devil tries to deceive you and how sinister idolatry can be in our lives. If the keys want to come and play, we have to be honest. We have to do something about this. I want to ask you, what are the idols in your life? I, I just want to ask you to think about this. What have you allowed to take a place, a prominence in your heart? Every minister deals with this. Every leader deals with this. Every husband and wife, everybody deals with this. What are the things that have, uh, you, you've allowed to take prominence in your life that perhaps God is allowing right now to come to light and you know it? He's actually been dealing with you and you've been pushing it off and ignoring him. Maybe it's one of the areas I mentioned. Maybe it's something God's been dealing with you privately for a while and right now because we're spirit-filled, the Holy Spirit has his finger on your heart and he says, I've been talking about this. I sent that handsome man from Tennessee to tell you about this. Is that not how God talks? I don't know. Whatever. That's weird. That was probably inappropriate. That's my own idol. I sent him to tell you to smash that thing out of your life. God's poking at your heart right now. And this is the night that that idol falls down and stays on the ground. Remember what the Philistines said in 1 Samuel 5? I mean, they're our model here. This is crazy. The Philistines got this right. Look at verse 5. The priests of Dagon had fallen the second time, and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this very day. They go, it's down, and we're leaving. They may have been pagans and murderous enemies of God's people, but when God showed up and insisted that no idol can stay around him, they realized what was happening and they insisted on separating their lives from that idol forever. Why do the Philistines get this right, but we don't? If that was the response of these guys, to leave that idol on the ground, shut the door, and never return, how much greater 
should we be at deliverance and walking away from some things and leaving those things behind forever? When Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus, in Revelation 2, I think this is a great letter for pastors and ministry leaders. He sends them a letter that first highlight, highlights all that they did well for him. He writes to the church of Ephesus. He says, hey, you guys are doing great. You got a lot of things going good. You're holding leaders accountable. You're hardworking. You're patient. You're fruitful. And he even says, you're doing all these things in my name. And that's what I believe is so true about you guys in Minnesota. I read your report this week in the, mail, in the email. I think it's great. You're crushing it. You're, you're supporting ministries and missionaries. You're, you're launching churches. You're packing churches. Your finances are healthy. You're doing all these great things as a network, as a district. And in your churches, you're crushing it for the kingdom. And then he goes, here's the only problem I have with you. You're doing all these great things. You're doing them in my name. You have abandoned your love for me. Like you're doing great. You're just not loving me. Like you're doing good for the house of God. You're just not spending time with the God of the house. You're doing a great job working for me. You're just not doing a great job working with me. And that's the problem of idolatry. We get into a place where we keep doing all the right things and accomplishing all the right things. And we're even doing these things in Jesus' name. And we're seeing fruit because God will show up in spite of you. He, wrote, he went on to say, you're doing all these great things, but you've abandoned. That's a drift. You've walked away. You've just drifted away or let other things in the way of your first love. We've allowed other things to take space in our heart. We love the work of God more than the God of our work. I said earlier, idolatry is a sinister companion. It's subtle. It's like weeds in a garden. I just had my, my, my front of my house remulched. And you know, when you get new mulch, you think, stay just like that. And within three days, I've got a weed this tall right up next to the house. I went and plucked it out and I look and there's no other. Literally the next day, there was like five of them. I'm cursing the devil. I'm just never going to win that fight. And that's how it is with idols. You get rid of one in your life and God reveals another. Or you give it enough time and we go reward ourselves with that idol again. Because, hey, I can handle it this time. But I want to tell you what Jesus said is the response when you've abandoned your first love and you've allowed idols in. Revelation 2 verse 5, he says, so remember from where you've fallen. In other words, he goes, remember where it started. Go back to the beginning. I want everybody to do me a favor. Just close your eyes. I want you to remember when you met Jesus. I was 17 years old on Halloween, the Lord's Day. I call it the Lord's Day. In the South, they call it the Devil's Day. I said, no, I got saved on Halloween. And I went to a church event called Judgment House where they scare hell right out of you. But I'll never forget the invitation to be a son of God and to be a, a part of the church body. And I'll never forget that moment when I met Jesus Christ and yielded my life to him. Jesus starts by saying, remember from where you've fallen. Go back, remember the beginning. Remember the God who saved you. Remember your salvation. David says in Psalm 51, return to me the joy of my salvation. You know one of the fastest ways to get idols out of your life is put Jesus back front and center. And the best, most pure time that you had with Jesus was the starting line. He says, remember from where you've fallen. Then he gives a really simple word. Number two, repent. 
Repent from your idolatry. Let God knock it over and smash it to bits and never return. Repentance is not a daily recurring thing that we do. Repentance is one time I'm turning 180 degrees away. He says, remember where it started. Repent. And then he says, do those things you did at first. Return to basics. I remember as a new Christian, they said, read your Bible every day. Spend time in prayer. Go to church. Those were the basics. And the longer I've served God, the harder it has been to maintain a life in the basics. Because now I'm educated and I'm, I got a job and I got family. I got all these other requirements. But man, I'm telling you, those things have crept up and taken the place and have caused me to drift away from my love for God. Where he's not, I don't not love God. I'm just not always sure that he's number one. I've allowed other things to take priority. That is idolatry. So remember the God who saved you and start there. Repent, like decide tonight, I'm going away from this. And return to the basics. Fall in love with Jesus again. Spend time in his presence. Devour his word. Covet the spirit of God. Worship him passionately. Seek him desperately like a deer pants for water. Let go of your professional inhibitions. Confess your sins humbly. I ask you tonight as you're praying, and we begin to respond to the Lord. Will we give in to the temptation, like the Philistines, to put the idol back on its pedestal? Or will we be the Philistines on the second day who let the idols fall and stay smashed to bits and swore to never go back? Can we stand around this room as the band begins to play with us? And we're going to respond to God.